welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. Ben Lipscomb, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's good to be back. So the uh, the pretext for this conversation is that uh, I led a reading group on The Sovereignty of Good by Iris Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And I think of you as, as my go-to expert now on all things related to Iris Murdoch and also her colleagues, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, and Mary Midgley, who were the subject of your book, The Women Are Up to Something. And uh, we had a great conversation about that book uh, about a year ago. And so I wanted to get your thoughts or just ask a few questions about what Murdoch is up to uh, in The Sovereignty of Good, which... Uh, I think is a, a fascinating text, and every time I go to it, I, I feel its richness even more keenly. So when we worked our way through this uh, book, it's a collection of three essays uh, or three uh, papers that had been previously published. Um, the first one is titled The Idea of Perfection, and there took a little bit of work to get into the argument. Uh, so she is speaking at a particular moment, uh, entering into a particular conversation in 20th century, mid 20th century um, moral theory. Can you unpack for us a little bit what what that context is? Who are her interlocutors or, or what is the target that she is after? Yeah. And just reading it, I think one could think, oh, I've got to go and read Stuart Hampshire, uh, whose works figure prominently as points of departure or targets for her. But she really only intends Hampshire as like the last thing she read that contained a set of assumptions that she sees as fairly ubiquitous among her uh, Anglophone philosopher contemporaries. She says that there's three biases, three sets of assumptions that moral philosophers of her time, philosophers generally of her time who deal with human things at all tend to have, that they are behaviorist, that they are existentialist, and that they are utilitarian. Um, And that these come together around a particular picture of uh, human life, human moral struggle that she thinks is misleading. Uh, Indeed, if we accept it, stops us from thinking precisely about some of the most important things that we need to be about in our lives. Um, So each of those labels, I guess, and we don't have to get into Wittgenstein's private language argument, uh, though we could uh, if you wanted to. Um, But behaviorism is uh, prominent not only in psychology, but in philosophy. Uh, in the mid-20th century. And what does this mean? It means cashing out, as some of these philosophers would say, any talk about the inner life, dispositions, virtues, concepts, meanings, into the outward actions or manifestations that they're supposed to be tied to. Mm -hmm. Um, And... This tends to minimize any too direct interest in the inner life, which is where she's going with this essay. What does it mean to perfect one's attention, one's loves? It sounds very Augustinian. Um, and, And so that's the first thing, a kind of focus on the outward to the exclusion of the inward, thinking that the inward is only to be understood in terms of its out outer manifestations. You can think of B.F. Skinner's actual behaviorist psychology here uh, as a limit case of this, uh, just counting and uh, recording the outward movements of something and trying assiduously to avoid any ascriptions of motives or emotions or whatever to animals, children, uh, adults, what have you. 
That's behaviorist. Existentialist, this is a really deep engagement for her, maybe the deepest of the three. She, as we talked about, I, uh, well, it's been long enough. I don't remember exactly what we talked about. Was we might well have talked about yeah. uh, last year uh, or earlier this year, whenever it was. She is one of the most engaged with French thought mm-hmm. uh, of her generation. Uh, she goes right after the war to Brussels to serve uh, with a UN uh, development and uh, reconstituting Europe group and uh, helping with displaced persons. And while she's there in Brussels, she's encountering Sartre and reading all the French existentialism she can get her hands on. And she's the local expert in Oxford mm-hmm. on this. And she finds it in some ways really inspiring, but inspiring and on the flip side, misleading. The focus with existentialism, to use, uh, I think it's Robert Solomon's expression in his lecture series and his book on this, no excuses. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking about the world as determining your actions. Stop thinking about any inner forces as determining your actions. You are what you do. You are what you choose. And so she sees philosophers of her time privileging the outer over the inner, privileging action uh, over any kinds of systemic or personal forces that might influence action, saying, no, buck up, make your choices, make your life what you're going to make it, Um, this stirring, stark doctrine. And then finally, utilitarian. I don't know how much that plays in this particular essay, But the idea that um, what counts in this world is what gets done, good outcomes, uh, rather than anything about, again, the perfection of the loves of an individual. So long, uh, long build up here. But she says all those things are on her mind because they tend to pull in somewhat similar directions. Everything outer, nothing inner. Everything about the publicly observable consequences of our actions, nothing about how we got there, what kind of people we're turning into. And what what struck me about the way she talks about some of these dynamics is that it prevents ordinary people from thinking and talking about their own moral life in the way that would make most sense to them, right? It's almost as if she's trying to preserve... Mm-hmm. and defend our ability to understand our moral life as as an inner world and a world of thought that we experience and development. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah. She thinks that this picture, which has understandable motives, there are considerations that pull in each of these directions that are comprehensible, but are taken to an extreme here. And if taken to an extreme, make it hard to even state, she says, uh, some of the concerns that arise naturally within an individual's life. I think the example um, that she develops throughout this essay, uh, where she uh, posits two individuals, M and D, she calls them, the letter M and D, letter D. One is the mother-in-law, another one is a daughter-in-law. I think this is maybe one of the classic passages in, in this work. And, and it certainly helped. Uh, it, it was an excellent example to help um, kind of hone in on, on what matters to her and and why this is important. Um, can you walk us through that example of, of the mother-in-law and the daughter and, and how she how Murdoch uses that? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll go with her expressions uh, here, M and D, just because they're uh, monosyllabic. Yeah. But uh, M has D come into her life through her son um, and doesn't like her much initially uh, is annoyed by her finds her tiresome juvenile immature uh, goofy and thinks her son is married beneath him uh, wishes that her life and her dear boy were not tied uh, to this person but she has sufficient self-awareness. Murdoch, I don't recall, says how this comes about, but she has enough self-awareness that she thinks maybe I'm just being prejudiced. 
maybe this is a generational thing. I've got faults that I'm blind to. Maybe they're affecting my vision here. Maybe they're affecting my judgment. Let me look again. And so she begins to attend very closely to her direct experiences with D, but also her recollections of interactions with D, trying out redescriptions of them, saying, could I describe this differently? Could I take it otherwise than I have? Can I be, I don't think Murdoch puts it this way, but I'm going to put it this way as a Christian. Can I be more charitable mm-hmm. by interpretation of this person? And she finds over time that her vision shifts. Um, and she would say that this is error reducing for her, that it, her vision clarifies mm-hmm. and she sees that there's a kind of delightful freshness and joy to D, that that's another way of describing this and a better way of describing this, better maybe in more than one sense. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. all of this, Murdoch says, let us suppose for the sake of making my argument about the inner mattering, all of this, let us suppose, takes place without any outward change, that this that M is a scrupulously polite and proper person who has been throughout behaving beautifully to D. But at the beginning, it's this sort of put on. And at the end, uh, it arises out of or in connection with her seeing the beauty in D's character. And to really seal it, right, she she has this imagined that um, this this change inside of M transpires either when D has moved away mm-hmm. or has died, right? So that, that it, it doesn't issue forth in right. any observable mm-hmm. action. Um, all that has changed is M's in, interior life, right? Her 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 character, her heart, however we might put it, right? Um, there's there's a lot of interest to me going on there. Um, I, I should say that there was a professor in the reading group uh, who grew up in England in the mid 20th century and uh, was happy to share that this was a totally recognizable <laughs> set of preju- prejudices uh, and way of speaking. Uh, in any case, um, what one of the things that strikes me here, and so there, there are a lot of intertwined themes in all three of these essays, they, they, they appear here already, you've alluded to them already, um, attention and the moral life is of you know, particular interest to me, its relationship to freedom. But then uh, the way you, you described um, a matter of description, am I describing things correctly? Because language also plays mm-hmm. a really critical role in Murdoch's thinking here. And um, not surprisingly, as someone who is also a novelist and obviously um, had a deep interest in the power of the word, if we might want to put it that way. Um, what, what can you help us flesh out what Murdoch sees as, as being so important in being able to use not just generic terminology, a point she makes it a handful of times, but a, an, an array of descriptive terms? What role does that play? in helping us see rightly how do, how does attention and language work together in that way? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have a tidy thing to say in response to it, but uh, let me talk around it a bit here. I think you're right to tie it to her calling as a novelist that she's constantly trying to find and exacting, uh, and I would say loving uh, description, even when it's when it involves judgment of her characters mm-hmm. um, and of the settings in which they find themselves, and she thinks that's the moral task too, to see without the filters of. She often uses the word, uh, it's drawn from Simone Weil, consolation, um, w- without the filters of fantasy, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. where our own longings, preoccupations, resentments cause us to see things in ways that suit them to our prejudices or preoccupations. Um And this is an artistic task. She thinks painters do it. Uh, She thinks playwrights and novelists do it. 
Uh, she says in one of these essays, I'm forgetting which, uh, that Cezanne's greatness is that he didn't paint, I like it, he painted There It Is, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get the apple um, without making it comforting or full of holiday cheer or whatever mm -hmm. uh, one might do besides seeing it as truly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, she had been since the mid-50s when uh, she and Philippa Foote uh, her friend uh, from way back, both taught a course together, a graduate seminar. She'd been thinking about the traditional moral vocabulary of virtues and vices. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the stuff in the idea of perfection and elsewhere, where she says a richer normative vocabulary is precluded by uh, thinking that all that matters is what actions happen in the world. If what actions happen in the world is all that matters, then all you need is to say, this is a good one, this is a bad one, this is mm -hmm. a better one, this is a worse one, right, wrong, but not base, cowardly, frivolous, licentious. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need these other words. And frequently, the other words, if you bring yourself to the point where you see this isn't infallible, but if you bring yourself to the point where you see really clearly what you're doing, that will sometimes have really powerful motivational effects. And so learning to see well and learning to act well, these are things that are tied together. And she thinks that um, a more exact vocabulary about how we are regarding others, about the dispositions within us, uh, about the character of our loves, these things are really morally uh, crucial. It's as if, to, because vision is also the, the metaphor that she wants to use most um, prominently with regards to the moral life. It, it's tied to, to seeing rightly, um, to seeing things as they are without fantasy. Um, and so the more the more attentive I am, to a certain situation or to, or to my own inner life, mm -hmm. then I think the, the, it seems to be that what, what happens, the tendency is for what initially just appears as, um, I don't know how to, how to put this, but a, um, a rather bland, undifferentiated surface to start revealing its depth and details to me. Right. So uh, at first uh, I may see only um, very vaguely, but if I attend to some some reality long enough, then its particularities begin to emerge, and and then I'm able to name things more precisely. That it, it and that so the precision and the capacity to name things precisely mm -hmm. reflects grows out of a more attentive gaze at the world that seeks to to see truly. Right. Yeah. This is uh, there are really easy non moral. Um, instances or analogies uh, of this that I think can get people thinking about it. Um, I have friends who are bird watchers. I am not. But when they enter a forest uh, or a meadow where there's lots of birds about, I see birds mm -hmm. or hear them. And they have this richly detailed sense of what's around them, of the mixture and what it might mean. Um, it's a bit, I suppose, uh, like when you got on a dark night and look up at the stars, if it's clear, and first there's just the really bright, uh, most obvious ones, but then as your eyes adjust, you see more and more. Language is like letting your eyes adjust, a more precise vocabulary knowledge of what you're seeing. And... Murdoch suggests that this is moral too. Uh, the more capacity you have to perceptively describe the interactions among people, the states of longing, regret, uh, intention that they can find themselves in, um, you will see more. And where you see more, you can do more. Right. And that, that's, that's critical, right? Because you, there's a, uh, place here i don't have it highlighted or ready at hand but she she says something like you you can only act in in a in accord with or based on what you're able to see right so the ex, the more expansive vision mm -hmm. generates a greater freedom of action it gives you a, a greater range yeah i've been having um 
arguments is too strong. So back and forth with uh, people subsequent to the book who think that I make Murdoch out to be too much like her friends with their interest in uh, the Aristotelian uh, tradition and ethics. But I think this is a point of contact anyway. Mm-hmm. That Aristotle thinks that the world looks different to the cowardly person, to the brave person, to the reckless person. That the same situation... Uh, say, a uh, accident by the side of the road and emergency services haven't arrived yet, will look to the reckless person like, woohoo, I'm going to charge in there, mm-hmm. uh, not taking cognizance of the risks and the consequences. will look to the brave person, uh, possibly like, here is a dangerous situation, but one which important things are at stake and I need to act. There are people in there. I need to make sure... Mm-hmm. And to the coward is, oh, that's too much for me. I should just mm-hmm. wait. Same visual stimuli, right. different interpretive schema, and that reflection and description, and as Aristotle suggests, formation, mm-hmm. um, what we see is what we can do. Right, right. Yeah, that's really well put. I um, So I used an example when we, I was also simultaneously teaching a class on attention into which I injected a good good deal of Murdoch as well. Um, and the example I used was, go, to go back just a little bit in our conversation, uh, both, I, I, I spoke about birds as well, actually. I've, I've tried to take up recently, uh, I won't call it full-fledged birding, but to be more attentive uh, as, a, as a kind of discipline. But there was a, um, another retired professor who was a plant pathologist. Uh, and my, my, suggest, my analogy was very similar to yours. I, I go into a wooded area I see trees, right? I, or I maybe I see oaks and then other trees or something of the sort, right? But he is able to discern um, in, in much greater detail varieties of trees. Um, and, and it seems to me as if he literally sees more than I do, right? I, I think he is able, the reality pops out to him in a different way than it does for me, um, which has led me to sort of say that the you know the gift of cultivating the virtue of attention is the world right you receive the world in a, in a way that we don't otherwise and I think this does carry over um, into the moral life as Murdoch suggests um, the the idea of the uh, so to to use uh, birding as a, as a segue here because there is a another well-known passage that comes up in the third and final essay in the book, uh, which is about a kestrel that catches Murdoch's attention. Um, Can you set up that particular passage? And it's it's relatively brief, but, but I think that'll help us um, kind of bring in a couple of other themes here as well, especially of um, uh, the fat relentless ego uh, that as she describes, right? Yes, it will. Um, Okay, so the point of looking here, it's it's still looking, it's still vision, but um, the moral significance of the looking or the moral consequences of the looking are a little different in this case. She imagines a person, well, I think she makes it about herself, uh, mm-hmm. suppose I'm sitting there full of petty resentments about some piece of office politics. I'm thinking about people and how they've wronged me and what I've wished for and what I haven't gotten. There's and a tweet that got under my skin, we might say. Yeah. A- <laughs> I'm stewing on all this stuff. And then I don't, I don't know what prepares a person to have their attention caught this way. Cause I'm not sure everybody's attention would be caught this way, but she mm-hmm. says, and then I see out the window, this kestrel hovering and for a moment, at least, my attention ceases to be on myself. It's on the bird, uh, that it's so attention-grabbing that it takes me out of myself, uh, out of these preoccupations that are stopping me from viewing the world uh, justly or much at all. Um, I'm locked in on this uh uh, on this obsessive stuff and the kestrel draws me out of myself mm-hmm. and uh, this, well, the tie here is that an attention to otherness, uh, whether that's other persons 
or just the world in general is a precondition of treating others well, of behaving well in the world, of regarding the world well. And so getting out of ourselves and then as we get out of ourselves, developing this richer vocabulary, looking and then looking again and then looking deeper. She has such a strong sense of the natural selfishness of the human being uh, that our, our tendency is to be self-centered in our perception, in our interpretation of the world. Um, I read this, one of, one of the other sources I drew on for the class on attention was uh, David Foster Wallace's Kenyon College commencement address. I don't know if you've, yes. you've read it. Yeah. And there he speaks in, in, in his own way, but I think um, very much in keeping with the spirit uh, of, of Murdoch's work on attention. Um, and, and he just, you know, I think he makes the point that this is just a very self-centeredness is, is our default position, right? We see the world as emanating out from us. We are at its center, right? Our, our embodied sense experience predisposes us to believe that we are the center of the world. And so it, it, it requires a great deal of effort to resist that, to not imagine that the drivers are in my way, but to consider the possibility that I am in their way, right? That what they have to do, right, is, is maybe <laughs> more important than what I have have before me. Um, and he works us through a lot of contemporary examples where we can take these opportunities to begin to see see differently, to imagine different possibilities. But your your point, your passing observation about what prepares a person to be so captivated by the kestrel, right? Because I, I think that's that's a that's a pretty important question. Um, all of this, and even with M, all of it tends to presuppose that there is some um, some desire there already to be better, right? To 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 be on the path toward moral perfection. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not all there, I suppose, right? Uh, and the the question of the kestrel I, does she seem to believe that there there are there's a, a unique power to beauty both natural beauty to li literary or artistic beauty that can can at least stand a greater chance of capturing attention in this way i'm not sure um if i know what she thinks about this. She thinks that art can be put in the service on the side of the artist or on the side of the um, recipient uh, can be put in the service of egotistical preoccupations of fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's nothing foolproof Mm -hmm. about this. It, when she talks about the artists she admires most, she talks about them making this effort like M makes mm -hmm. with B to get past themselves and their obsessions. And she says, even Shakespeare, who's one of the greatest of this, occasionally he's got these obsessions that he's working. And it is, this is fantastically difficult. Mm -hmm. This is a lifelong work of her word for it is perfection. Mm -hmm. But what motivates that? Um, what breaks one out in the first place? I don't know that she gives us um, an account of this. And I think, I mean, this, I suppose, requires its own background. Um, but one of the things that's striking to me as I was thinking again about uh, Murdoch in preparation for our conversation is how useful, too little a word, how necessary it is to have other people, a community like the body of Christ speaking into one's life, telling oneself, you're not seeing enough, you need to look again, uh, so that it's not all dependent on my having a personal project of always seeing more or seeing better, D reminding me when I'm not seeing enough. Isn't it likeliest to be somebody else when I, in an unguarded moment, say of D, uh, her, uh, who says, no, it I mean, some friends will just enable you. There was an article in the New York Times about it this week. <laughs> some friends will just enable you, but others will say, 
I think you have more to see there. Mm-hmm. It, you just reminded me of um, Nathan confronting David about his sin and finding a way uh, through a story, as it, as it, it turns out to be, right, of, of reframing his vision, of, of, of managing to have David reposition himself uh, relative to his actions um, uh, with regards to, um, uh, to Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Um, and, and I suppose if we, if we think about this um, theologically, then this, this is the answer we're looking for is grace, right? It's the moment of grace that strikes us unawares. Um, I've always been um, fond of uh, a line in, in Walker Percy where he, he writes of a dim, dazzling trick of grace uh, that catches us unawares. Where is that? Uh, uh, it's in uh, it's in the movie goer. Okay, uh, it's towards the tail end. It's been a while since I've read it, but yeah, dim dazzling trick of grace. Um, and someone, re- re- you know, the the way it's set up is, uh, you know, did they plan for this or or were they caught off guard by a dim dazzling trick of grace? And it's a little of both or something like that. But mm-hmm. but yeah, we have those moments um, that cannot be planned for, um, and and our operations of God's grace in our life. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I want- now O'Connor, uh, uh, one of other uh, one of the other people that Paul Eli writes about, uh, yeah, right. uh, with these sort of violent uh, epiphanies. Yeah, it, all sorts of things can do it. Yes, yeah, right. Um, and I and I suppose it it, it is um, we we can. I've taken to thinking of attention both in terms of. Um, uh, the, the the obvious sense where it's it's this capacity to focus to to remove distractions to um, be single minded in our uh, concentration upon a text or a person or whatever, but also uh, I, I think of attention too as a as an openness. So it's a state of being in the world that is prepared to receive mm-hmm. what is there, um, which I think I has been shaped by my reading uh, of Murdoch and, and Simone Weil as well. We can actually talk about her in just a moment, but um, so there's something to be said, I think for, for becoming aware of the degree to which we are habituated to inattentiveness. Um, a lot of attention now is given to how our devices do this for us. You know, we're constantly trained, we're trained. It is almost, um, uh, to bring B.F. Skinner back into us, it's almost behaviorist uh, in in the way that our attention is shaped by this kind of alacrity that we have to respond to its its lures. Um, and I was reminded of uh, Hannah Arendt's great line about behaviorism that the the danger in behaviorism is is not that it is uh, true, but that we might start living as if it were true, or that it would become true. Um, and so all of this, I think, does. Uh, at least it serves to me as an encouragement to become more mindful and aware of the ways in which I can cultivate a certain kind of attentiveness and then be, be perhaps better positioned for that moment, right? To see the kestrel in the first place, maybe we might say. And Murdoch is, uh, she's one of our great authors on this, on the importance of cultivating this appreciative, receptive, disposition trying to remember what the terms are that um i just made the acquaintance of a philosopher at creighton david mcpherson uh who's written a little book called the virtue of limits uh which i think you'd like a lot and is about that's my reading group next semester is it okay it's (laughs) fundamental contrast between a kind of seizing controlling Mm -hmm way of being toward the world and an appreciative, receptive way of being toward the world. Those aren't his exact terms. That's roughly the Mm -hmm. contrast. Mm -hmm. And so much turns on this. There's something to be explored in how one pivots from the appreciative to the cultivating. Um, The person I would want to think this through with is Wendell Berry, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that there's, there's, um, there's freedom in being attentive in this way. And, and it goes back to the idea of we, we can't act beyond what we can see. And so if we are able to cultivate our attention 
in that moment where action is called for, we, we will have become the kind of people who see the world rightly and are thus enabled to act rightly. And, and so our freedom of action is, is not something that springs out of nowhere in that moment, um, you know, as maybe the existentialist might have it, but it's something that we have cultivated a capacity for. I yeah. forget how Murdoch puts it right, but bef- before, around, I, it almost reminds me of Luther's language of the presence of crisis. I, before, around, after uh, uh, that, the, the moment of decision, not after, but certainly before and around it. In with and under. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you are already becoming mm-hmm. a certain kind of attentive subject. And, and when the moment comes, I think Murdoch says in two or three places, uh, it's as if the game has already been played at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it it's striking. I mean, if anybody's thinking, well, you know, we've left behaviorist psychology behind. How much is this our problem now? I think about an area uh, of ethics in which I do some teaching in biomedical ethics, and all of the effort and attention for comprehensible reasons. We're so worried about the damaging large scale effects of bad policy that we give all our attention to saying what is the right or the wrong, the permissible or the impermissible thing to do uh, in this case or that case. And we don't leave ourselves time or we treat as just a kind of nice extra. Um, What would a caregiver be like who would be the right person to consult about a difficult and ambiguous question? Right. That's a great example. Um, so uh, this, I, I, I'm going to serve up another segue here. Uh, the caregiver reminds me of the, the suffering subject, which reminds me of, of Simone Weil talking about how um, is, it is the most difficult thing in the world to pay attention, to give attention to the sufferer. Simone Weil looms large in Murdoch's writing, at least at this stage uh, in her work. Um, how did, do you know a little bit about the background of how she became familiar with Simone Weil? Um, I, I feel like this is one of, is this one of the first places in, in the world of philosophy where uh, Vey is drawn on? Um, I know that Camus has a, a comment about Vey's singular personality somewhere, but writing in the 50s, Murdoch seems to be... Um, I don't know, just uh, unusually attuned to Vey's work uh, earlier than than maybe others. I wish I knew. I grabbed Peter Conradi off the shelf. I would probably be able to to look up (laughs) uh, if it's knowable at all. Um, But you'd think it would be in her journals, in Murdoch's journals. I wish I knew when she first encounters um, Vey's notebooks. the English translation, I think, first appears in 1952, and she is thinking about Vey well before that. Um, there's a exchange of letters I love between her and her BBC producer in, I think, 1949 or 1950, in which she's wondering whether she should call Vey Vey or Simone. Is that too matey? She says, <laughs> um, which she's going to refer to her. Uh, so she's reading her in French, um, but... I don't know exactly yeah. when that influence uh, comes in, yeah. but uh, it's profound. You read uh, Gravity and Grace, uh, these notebooks, uh, as I say, published in English for the first time in 52, and it doesn't feel like reading Murdoch. The voices are quite different, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you can have the sense of, was Murdoch at certain points just channeling this? What what was a ri- what was original to Murdoch in her appropriation of some of these themes of seeking consolation of projective fantasies of how the machinery of the self stops us from attending all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and how seeing rightly, uh, attending rightly is almost synonymous with love. I think that that occurs, I think in both their work. Um, so the difference Ultimately, I, I think is that um, Simone Weil we think of as a, as an explicitly religious and almost mystical, or not almost, but maybe even mystical thinker. Um, Murdoch's own 
spiritual biography is certainly more complicated. Um, but she does not end up affirming any kind of faith, even even here at this point. Um, but she had at some point, uh, and then this is going back, to, you know, to your book where I you know learned about her relationship with a professor while while she was in Oxford, who was a theologian or a Christian philosopher, had a profound impact on her. Um, how can can you give us what is the because this was another question of interest to to members of the reading group. What's the synopsis of of her spiritual biography? Sure, raised in essentially a non-religious home. Her mother uh, had been part of an Irish evangelical community uh, growing up, um, but not deeply shaped by it. And so when her parents married and moved to England, her mother would sing revival hymns in the way that she would sing lots of things. Her mother Mm -hmm. could have had a career as a singer. Uh, around the house, but that's as deep as it went mm-hmm. for her. She goes to this very idealistic, secular, secondary school, badminton, um, and, you know, it's a very idealistic place. Uh, I, the headmistress is pushing everyone to get involved with the Junior League of Nations and to think about how to engage with the world constructively, but it's a kind of secularized Quakerism. Mm-hmm. that uh, she's getting. And like a lot of people of her generation, uh, I think this is a connection between the present and that time around 1938-39. She's hungry for something to give herself to, uh, to live and die for. And very early in her university career, she becomes this ardent communist, but she's also under the tutelage of Donald McKinnon, mm-hmm. this Catholic uh, philosopher, theologian, who mesmerizes her and uh, more than one of her friends, not only with the insights that he brings into their tutorials, but also with his spiritual seriousness. Um, They want to learn from him. They want to be like him. Occurs to me saying that that he's a little bit like the Kestrel that you meet somebody so good like Dante looking at Beatrice for the first time that you think I want to be different I want to be better because I perceive you um, what love can do um, for a few years then after the Second World War it's coming on during the war. But she leaves the Communist Party late in the war. She begins to become disillusioned uh, with what she's learning about uh, global communism. Uh, We don't have as clear a picture of this as we might, but it seems like that's what's going on. And she becomes a kind of questing fellow traveler with uh, Christians of various sorts. Spends a lot of time up at the Abbey of Malling. Uh, which becomes grist for her novel, The Bell, Uh, but going and doing spiritual retreats and uh, going to Christian worship, uh, devoting herself to practices of prayer. And sometime in the early 50s, this slips away. She stops going to a discussion group around Oxford called The Metaphysicals that she had been engaged with um, and says, "I, I just don't see my way to this the way I did. Um, You had different accounts of what took her out of this. Uh, Her relationship to John Bailey seems to figure prominently. Um, She said to an interviewer once, John got rid of God for me. Uh, I don't know whether that's a fully trustworthy remark, but it is temporally about right, early to mid-50s, that she stops trying to practice this path Mm. And becomes a kind of non-specific mystic, Mm -hmm. interested in something transcending us that we can turn ourselves toward, uh, that she will call goodness with a capital G following Plato, but no longer being willing to subordinate herself to, to bring herself under the discipline of some tradition, some community and its practices. Yeah. Yeah. So that the middle essay 
in the sovereignty of good is on on God, God in quotation marks, and the good in quote. In other words, those those terms. Um, and it does strike me there is that she is trying to figure out some analogous way towards an ideal of perfection that is that is, however, not theological. Uh, but but a lot of it, it, you know she she says at one point that how can the person seeking to uh, morally improve themselves find help? Uh, and, and she says the believer can pray, right? So she has these ways in which believers can can turn towards something. She's trying to look for something analogous there, but it is it is pretty clear that that whatever path that is, it's a path in which um, no actually existing God plays a role, at least not, certainly not in anything like the, the Christian sense. Yeah. Yeah. She wants prayer-like practices. She wants a God-like, but not too much God-like yeah. object of attention right. uh, that is transcendent and reorienting. Um, I wonder how much uh, her ongoing engagement with, and we don't want to get into Vey exegesis here, but I wonder how much that played into this too, because Vey says these apophatic things about you pray is uh, if God is not there, and then the revelation uh, can come to you. Um, you need to have that kind of spirit about it. But yeah, Murdoch wants to see how much can be salvaged. Yeah, yeah. I, there was an offhand um, comment in a lecture I was listening to uh, a few months ago that offered that perhaps the, dis- the distinction was that there was still some part of Vey seems perfectly content in in a complete self denial, but maybe Murdoch wasn't quite there. Right? There's some part of the creativity of the self, the imagination. This person sort of linked it to the novelist, the the person of literary sensibility in Murdoch uh, that still wasn't quite prepared to to so radically eclipse the self. Um, however, you know, um, large getting out of our self-centeredness looms in her moral thinking. There was still a line that was just too far. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, she regards self-abnegation or at any rate self-judgment as uh, its own potential form of self-preoccupation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether she... She says this about Kierkegaard, that uh, he's really a delightful and deeply feeling author, and yet there's something um, obsessional, uh, even Mm -hmm. masochistic, in him, and uh, she wants to be on guard against this in herself. I wonder if she judged Faye the same Mm -hmm. way in the end, Uh, but she doesn't... You're right, she... uh, There's places Faye goes that she can't or won't, and it's somewhat under the influence... This is a little surprising to me, uh, given what I think of as the most important insights of her early career, but it's ways in which she becomes a little bit like Jean-Paul Sartre Mm. over the course of her career, uh, focused on having a completely disillusioned view of the world and seeing it as an evil place uh, in some ways and uh, or at any rate, a heartless place, not born of love. And I don't know if it's the problem of evil exactly, but uh, a problem of callousness, maybe something Tennysonian uh, that she talks a lot about in metaphysics as a guide to morals and other passages through um, the second half of her career I think that sense of I just can't believe in God in this world mm-hmm. is um, at least a large part of her own way of talking about her yeah. lack of belief. And then the question is, okay, what is nevertheless necessary for human goodness, a thing that I believe in very strongly uh, in the face of that absence? Mm. Interesting. Um, w- was she in conversation with Anscom at all about some of these questions? I think not much after um, the mid-1950s. They're close through the time that they both arrive back at Oxford. I mean, have 
a sort of incipient affair, actually, uh, at the end of the 1940s. Um, and there's evidence of them going out for coffee and having conversations, even as they both get very busy with their independent projects through the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly by the time we're into the 60s, um, and she's writing the essays, the talks mm-hmm. that go into Sovereignty of Good, they're not talking much. Um, so Ben, let's maybe as we wrap up here, um, what would you say are, what's the, the enduring relevance of Murdoch in your mind to the moral life? I think we touched on it earlier, Michael. Um, I think, but it's good to come back to it here. Um, that even if she leaves us with unanswered questions, about what we can allow ourselves to hope or long for, what we can stake ourselves on, even if she leaves us with unresolved questions about how we are brought to a point, what kind of grace or human or divine uh, enters our lives to redirect us and turn us toward the light, thinking in a way she would, I think, approve of the, you know, mysterious figure who comes down and liberates people in Plato's cave. Um, Whatever she doesn't tell us, there's something profoundly right about being a person who exists for the good of the world, who enacts and spreads beauty, uh, who loves others and cultivates uh, the things and people around them, how much this turns on clarity of vision in a way that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. I think that is the thing with her. Uh, Again, I think, and I want to draw this up because it's maybe it can, this all can sound a little woo. um, And I think Wendell Berry helps us to maybe get past that. Uh, that he says, look, if you don't know intimately the place or the people you are dealing with, you are going to behave crudely, even violently with respect to them, because you can't know what you're doing except with a certain intimacy of acquaintance. It's a point, I think, very close to the point that Murdoch drives home to us, uh, but she makes it so insistently and so vividly. Yeah, thank you. That's well put. Ben, thanks a lot again for joining us and uh, helping us think through what Murdoch has to offer to us. Um, Really grateful. It's been great being here. Thanks so much, Michael.